Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts. And rather improbably, it's our second episode in a row to talk about Liberal Democrat election triumphs. You wait ages for one election triumph. And then triumph, just multiple then, come along yeah. at once. So uh, thank you very much for listening to this show. I hope you carry on listening as Stephen and I pick over the bones of the European election results and think a little bit about what they might mean for the future. But I believe, Stephen, you're planning to kick off with reciting all 16 Liberal Democrat MEPs' names, is that right? Uh, in, in reverse order, yeah, just to make it harder for myself. No, I can't <laughs> actually do that, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a roll call of honour. You, you do the honours, Mark. Uh, I think we might edit in the list okay. afterwards. I, I was trying to remember them all on the way here this morning. I did just, in the end, get <laughs> to 16, but it's rather, rather a childish pleasure. So more MEPs than MPs indeed, for the Lib Dems. Indeed, and 20% of the vote, which is a um, pretty high, really. It, it is, yeah. And it was interesting uh, just uh, looking at the final opinion polls for mm. uh, the Euro elections, because out of the 10, I think, that I counted... Mm of the final surveys, eight of them had Labour in the second place, uh, with the Lib Dems in usually third, but there were a couple that um, put the Lib Dems yeah. behind the Conservatives. And of course, as we know, that's not yeah. how it panned out. So it was an interesting uh, example of um, Labour's vote not holding up and of, uh, uh, and of the Lib Dems doing better than expected, which I have to say, you know, again, in my kind of prior assumption was, it's gonna be one of those nights, isn't it, where the Lib Dems do well by any kind of objective measure, mm. but if they don't come second, it will be ever so slightly disappointing as well. Yeah, and I, that's not how it worked. I caught myself shortly before Euro polling day looking at a poll which I think had the Lib Dems on thirteen percent for the Euros, and thinking it was that was disappointing, and then thinking, hang on a minute, roll the clock back <laughs> yeah. a few weeks. I'd have been quite pleased with that. I think looking at the polls, well, first of all, shout out to Kieran Pedley, host mm-hmm. of another brackets possibly better political <laughs> podcast, uh, Polling Matters, because I believe this was his first election doing essentially prediction opinion polling in his new job at Ipsos Mori and Ipsos Mori along with YouGov were the mm-hmm. two who pollsters who pretty much got it spot on. So they both did overestimate the Brexit party. I mean, not state, I mean you're right they, they did very well overall uh, but, but it I was think, a, an interesting trend. Uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect Kieran and colleagues at Mori, uh, Ipsos Mori as well as the, the team at YouGov would be slightly relieved as they were sort of the two outliers compared yeah. to the others. I think looking at those polls they fall the errors there were fall into two categories. One was it does look like there was a late swing to the Lib Dems, an extension in a way mm-hmm. of a swing all the way through the campaign. But curiously, quite a few pollsters did their final feed, field work quite a long way before polling day. In a yeah. way, they know not to do at a general election. So I think part of it is polls may have been accurate, but then turned out to be sort of too early, uh, finished their polling too early. And the Ipsos Mori poll was of those registered to vote and also of those who said they were 10 out of 10 certain to vote as well, which uh, is one of those things about... When in a low turnout election, which by mm. general election standards or indeed referendum standards, this was you know thirty seven percent turnout overall, so relatively uh, yeah. low turnout. Uh, in which case, the inclination of uh, people who are likely to vote obviously matters in terms of the final mm. outcome. So um, uh, it does highlight that difficulty for pollsters, I guess, when yeah. it comes to people who say, "Yeah, I'm a Labour voter. Mm. Um, yeah, of course I'll turn out for them." but then don't, because actually they don't care that yeah. much about the European elections. And I think that leads on to the, the second group of errors. There was the a group of errors that to do with finishing fieldwork too early, but then some of the pollsters looked like they had methodologies mm. that just didn't quite work. It's not obvious looking at the pattern. It'll be really interesting to see what you know some of the experts make of it when they pick over the different methodologies and how the pollsters performed, whether there is any 
there are any lessons there. Um, but yeah, it's But the good thing nice is that, that because they didn't all predict that Lib Dems would come second, uh, it therefore does make the result look uh, better than, I guess, most people uh, hoped, well, most people expected, I should yeah. say. And, and clearly a lot better than the BBC election <laughs> night programme planners were you, expecting. You had, you had a bit of a beef, didn't you, about the uh, election night coverage generally? Well... Yes. <laughs> so for, the, for anyone who was wise enough not to spend their time watching the BBC in the early hours of the morning on, a, on Sunday stroke Monday, it was very striking how it took nearly two hours into the programme, the election night's programme, before the BBC had on one of their panels anyone from the party who finished second in the elections. Yeah. And I think it's not hyperbolic to say that that's probably never happened before with the BBC election night yeah. programme, that you have to go deep, deep into the show before the party that's finishing second features on one of their panels. Now, to their credit, certainly uh, Hugh Edwards and Laura Kusenberg, you can see how during that show they more and more frequently refer to how well the Liberal Democrats yeah. were doing, quite often calling that out in passing. But I do think the BBC planners in that sense were rather caught on the hop. Um, and they weren't alone in that regard. Uh, if you looked at, for example, uh, one of Fraser Nelson's tweets early on in the evening, again, to his credit, later on he was tweeting about how well the Lib Dems uh, you know, did. But one of his initial tweets talked about uh, basically all the parties in the top four, except for the Lib Dems. He managed to talk yeah. about num you know, numbers one, three and four, skipping past number two. And I, and I think there is an extent there. To a shout which... out, though, to Alistair Campbell, um, a Lib Dem voter at mm. this election, uh, extraordinarily enough. Uh, who actually put in quite a good shift for the yeah, um, indeed. For I'm not quite sure what it says uh, when he's our, he's our frontline representative. Uh, and indeed for the Remain Alliance generally. So, uh, so at least there was some kind of token representation, even if it was a borrowed vote on this occasion. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but as you say, let's be positive and uplifting indeed. about this and say it yes. makes the political fallout potentially all the more positive because it was slightly a surprise. Um, I guess one bit of the fallout is where does the Lib Dem support go for? From, from yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting bit of polling by Lord Ashcroft, who has done his usual mm -hmm. polling people straight away at the time of the election and then publishing detailed polling a couple of days later about why do people vote the way they did, etc. The broad headline figures are not really surprising that people voted for who voted for pretty much every party other than Labour say Brexit was the big issue. Mm -hmm. People who stuck with Labour generally were saying, oh, no, no, it's not Brexit, that's not really that important. It's another issue that really matters more to us. Actually, the, it was interesting in the Ashcroft polling, uh, it stood out that the top reason Labour voters gave for voting Labour was they always vote Labour. Mm. Uh, and that wasn't the case for, well, maybe for the Conservatives, but it wasn't the case for Lib Dems, Greens, yeah. whatever. Uh, interestingly, for the Lib Dems, it was, unsurprisingly, you know, they uh, voted support the party policy on Brexit. For the Greens, actually, it wasn't that. It was the uh, raising issues other than the, Brexit. Yeah, sorry, that's, that's, that's very true. That was, And I think the Greens, actually, in that sense, were quite successful at linking Brexit very clearly to another issue, yeah. as in we need to be in Europe in order to combat climate change and deal with environmental issues effectively. A point that Liberal Democrats you know, believe probably as much, I, would have, I think it's fair to say, mm -hmm. as Greens, but the Greens clearly communicated that connection very successfully and it's in their name it kind of helps yeah, as well absolutely. With the branding. well a bit like the brexit party yeah. uh, likewise very clear branding. i think the other thing that struck me and i was pleasantly surprised by how high this number was was ashcroft then went on to ask people you know firstly how did you vote but then are you likely to vote for that party if there is a general mm. election yes uh, and so lib dem support 20 percent in the euros it only falls to 17 percent so not a big fall mm. Uh, one might even at a stretch say within the margin of error, uh, but that, but not a big fall in that sense. And that I think 
does run slightly counter to the Michael Heseltine, Alastair Campbell type perspective on why the Lib Dems did so well, because mm -hmm. I think both of them have been perfectly reasonably quite clear that they voted Lib Dem this time, but they really don't want to have to vote Lib Dem ever again in their lives. Uh, whilst what it looks like, and this I think backs up the experience of a lot of, say, Lib Dems out canvassing and so on, is a lot of people have switched for not necessarily banked permanent, they're going to be Lib Dems for life reasons, but have switched in a way that isn't simply, I'm lending you my vote today, but more in a, I'm just so fed up with my party, I'm no longer going to support them, I've now switched to support you. And so there is a huge chunk of switches there who are very much up for grabs for the party to properly hang on to. Can I... I I'm I think I think you're probably right, but can I inject a note of scepticism? Uh, less on the Lib Dem figure, but uh, a lot of the headlines on the Ashcroft poll have been around the fact that uh, the Brexit Party vote holds up as well. And lots of Conservative voters say they will stick with the Brexit Party. Yeah, and uh, of course that's what was being said in 2014. And in fact, I yeah. saw uh, Phil Cowley, I think, uh, tweeted yeah, about yeah, this. I saw, Notice I saw how we're, we're we're slipping in lots of references to other other people with large Twitter followings. <laughs> Hopefully, they might therefore plug this episode. So, um, so Philip Cowley, uh, wonderful, uh, lovely expert, professor, expert man, brilliant man, um, one, writes wonderful books. Pointed out, and I can't remember the uh, I, I can't remember the figures exactly, but said, you know, look at the 2014 polling. You kicked off mm. the poll and Conservatives got spooked and uh, ended up putting the referendum mm. in the manifesto yeah. and didn't that work out well. Uh, and when you asked voters, mm. will you stick with UKIP at the next general election, um, the majority of them said, yes, of course we will. Uh, and yet we know that when it came to the 2015 election, the following year, they didn't in reality yeah. because general election issues took over. Now, of course, that is mm. we are in a different time, I realise, from 2014. Brexit does matter, is the dominant issue uh, not for all voters, but for lots of voters now, in a way that it wasn't then. But it does suggest that if you if you ask voters to predict their future behaviour, they're not very good at doing so. I, I definitely agree with that last point, that that is a big issue. And it's why, for example, pollsters find it very difficult to get turnout projections right as well. Not just people feeling they should say that they're going to vote because that's what society expects of them. But again, you know, generally voters are pretty bad at predicting future behaviour. However, I think there are two... Caveats to your caveats, okay. as it were. Go One is, I think the whole question about why Cameron put the, decided to go for a referendum, it, it's not clear that the chronology of when he made the decision uh, and how that decision-making played out really fits that neatly with, with that particular set of European elections. But the other caveat is, I think, there's a difference between people voting UKIP at that time and then thinking they would stick with UKIP, but UKIP imploding so spectacularly that they lost lots of support versus people thinking they would stick with UKIP but that not really being you know, mm -hmm. what, at heart what they, what they genuinely felt or were likely to do at that point. And I think it's often forgotten that you know, both Nigel Farage and UKIP more generally had gone through lots of swings of both quite success but then all sorts of implosion, controversy, sure. etc. And one thing that's worth bearing in mind, because I've seen some people say it about these elections, about, you know, all these attacks on Nigel Farage are really counterproductive as well. Actually, Nigel Farage's reputation and his then political party's polling ratings took a real hammering in the past. So mm -hmm. it's not obvious that criticising him necessarily failed. So it may well be that people did think they were going to stick with UKIP, but then UKIP performed politically badly, which makes all the more the point for the Lib Dems that... You know, the party can't just assume sure. by any divine right it will hold on to its support. So, uh, thinking of mm -hmm. what these elections portend for the Lib Dems and what they might mean for strategy Government. and for targeting, Power. yes, go back to your uh, MEP constituencies and prepare, uh, etc. Um, prepare for committee is, meetings. 
Is there a, a, I haven't looked into the data properly <coughs> to know this, um, but my suspicion is that the Lib Dems could do quite well, in particular with the soft conservative vote, uh, and we saw that with the local elections, of course, yep. before mm. the Euros as well. So we've got two bits of polling data now. However, a lot of the kind of uh, really phenomenal success, uh, in particular when you look at London, mm. was in big city areas um, where it's clear that the uh, the Labour vote from 2017, which didn't come to the Lib Dems, did in large chunks on this occasion. Mm. The question is, can the Lib Dems hold on to those uh, votes, in particular in urban areas. I think it's more likely in the kind of uh, in the smaller towns and shires that the Lib Dems can hold on to it, um, just as the Lib Dem electoral success really hit home in the uh, mid to late 90s uh, and really ate into the Tory vote there. Um, but we've had much hard, found it much more difficult to convert tough Labour areas. Had a smattering of success, in particular mm. in university towns and cities. But generally, London in particular, a hard nut to crack. Topped the poll this time. People pointed to the Islington vote, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's own backyard, Lib Dems came first. But does anyone really expect the Lib Dems to actually oust either Emily Thornberry or Jeremy Corbyn at the next election? I, I You know, the loyalist in you will say yes, of course they can, and yes, yes they can. <laughs> but realistically, I think it would be a bit of a stretch on this occasion. Who knows, but it would be a stretch. So the question is... Can the Lib Dems hold on to the soft Conservative voters much more easily than we can convert Labour voters for whom this was a one-off uh, kicking the Labour Party? I think there's one other factor to consider in that respect is that it is always been easier for the Lib Dems to win votes over from whichever party is currently in power. Mm, fair point. And in that sense, the dynamic of trying to win seat, uh, votes and hence seats off the Conservatives is much more straightforward because you've got the, you know, their record in government as well to sort of run against. Whilst with Labour, it's messier. And I think the reason it's worked so well for the Lib Dems in the European elections was because there was a clear thing to run against in that mm -hmm. sense of Labour, Labour's equivocation uh, on, you know, over, over uh, the European issue. Um, and that's likely to play out in a general election. The big unknown is when that general election will be and how much Brexit is an issue. And the more the Brexit is an issue, therefore, the more likely it is the Lib Dems will be able to be more successful at winning votes over from Labour. But crucially, even if that is a bit of a struggle, I think what the locals and then the Europeans have done is massively reinforced the party's ability to win tactical votes in the sorts of mm -hmm. seats where it might be hoping to gain... Uh, so what kind of seats MPs. are those? What, well, which ones are you thinking of? Before I, before I come on to naming oh, okay. them, I think there's a question about how many there are, because yeah, uh, yeah. not surprisingly, yeah. a lot of people have been pumping numbers into... Uh, into seat projections. Because this was the return of the good second place for, exactly. uh, for the Lib Dems. Yeah. You know, in, in the 2000... well, except in London, we blew it, we just overshot. <laughs> <laughs> in the 2005 election, Lib Dems, yeah. uh, 300 seats that um, the party was either first or second yeah. placed in. Uh, and it hasn't <laughs> Almost been, all second. <laughs> uh, and it hasn't... Well, yeah, uh, yeah, fair point. 80% uh, second place. Now, politics is all about finishing first or second. <laughs> exactly. So in a two-horse race, yeah. first-past-the-post system, it kind of yeah. is. Um, but uh, obviously, since... Uh, since mm. coalition, uh, even the number of second places yeah. has been um, dived. has, has yes. been very short in supply. So yeah, go on, name the places. Yeah. Which well, you so think before are I actual... before I name some oh, of them, come on, Mark. The, the, I think the point to make about some of these seat projections is if you look at the Lib Dem ability to turn national vote share into seats, there's a very been a very broad range. So mm -hmm. at, at its at the party's best, when we've been really good at targeting and had a favourable national wind and so on we basically got just under three seats for every one percentage share of the vote. Mm -hmm. And at our worst, 
we've we've barely got one seat for each percentage share of votes. So if you take something like maybe 15% of the general election, let's take a nice round number, depending on which sort of ratio we see next time, that could be anything between 15 to 45 seats. Mm -hmm. it, 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 there are yeah. very broad And the ranges. most famous example being the 1992 and 1997 elections mm. when the Lib Dem vote share actually fell very slightly, not by much, but fell very yeah. slightly, and yet, of course, the Lib Dems went from, what, 22 MPs party more than doubled, yeah. to 45, whatever it was. Uh, yeah, that, that you can always have a bit of fun about how many how many seats you, you, you think the party won in 1992, depending on whether you include the people who yeah. were the ongoing SDP, etc. But um, the, the the broad picture is there's a big variation, and therefore I think people should take these seat projections with uh, many, many pinches of salt, mm -hmm. because it's possible that having been pretty bad at converting national share of the vote into seats in the last couple of general elections, that we'll begin to see that ratio move up again and therefore sure. winning many more seats. And the sort of seat that you can imagine looking very, very favourable now is, say, somewhere like Winchester. Mm -hmm. where, St Albans. Yeah, Liberal Democrat, local government base in both places sort of survived, battered, but survived the coalition years, yeah. has therefore been able to rebound much more strongly. And indeed, if you look at uh, the, the margins by which the party missed out in both seats at the last election, not massive margins. Sure. As you say, the, the, the more... Um, challenging types of seats to try and predict is what happens in seats that have you know had strong liberal democrat presence in the past maybe hornsey and wood green uh, you know lynn featherston's old seat or simon hughes's pre uh, mm -hmm. old seat in southwark where labor racked up very large majorities yeah. in 2017 but then lost votes hand over fist in the european elections this time and still also places where a battered you know, Lib Dem local government base survived, has, has recovered, large Lib Dem memberships, etc. So very hard to tell at this yeah. point, particularly because who knows, by the time this podcast goes out, Jeremy Corbyn may have decided to <laughs> resign. Him, them, and I mean, I suspect he's not going to resign that quickly. But obviously one of the big risks for the party and the big unknowns is if Jeremy Corbyn departs as Labour leader before the next general election, Labour will have a leadership contest with a membership that's overwhelmingly pro-European and it's very hard to see whoever wins, and I mm. guess it might be quite a left-winger who wins, given the makeup of the Labour Party, but it's quite hard to see somebody who isn't an out-and-out, I want Britain to stay in the EU, winning the next Labour leadership election. Yeah. And I guess for keeping Britain in the EU, that would be really good news. So try not to be too tribalistic about it. Let's hope that happens tomorrow. Obviously, for immediate Liberal Democrat electoral prospects, that would probably be quite challenging. Yeah, And it's interesting, isn't it, trying to think about what the... Uh actual effects of the European election campaign will be, because I was trying to think of that on the night, because obviously everyone was getting excited, and certainly in, well, in Lib Dem circles, maybe less so in Conservative and Labour circles, but uh, in Lib Dem circles getting very excited about Conservative circles, results. just about everyone was planning to run for leader. Um, or or, or yeah. looking and yeah, see the Brexit yeah, party. There are, there are so many Tory candidates for leader, there are now not any more Tory candidates for leader than there are Lib Dem MPs, but there are now more than there are <laughs> Lib Dem MEPs as well. <laughs> So, thinking of the implications, uh, and the last time Labour got a uh, fright was when Change UK mm. um, was formed. It was then, of course, known as the Independent Group, uh, and still is, I suppose, partly. Uh, and uh, that caused Jeremy Corbyn to show a bit of ankle of, um, towards a referendum mm. vote, enough to get back some of the mm. Labour MPs who were thinking of defecting at the time, going, OK, well, we'll give it another yeah. shot. And then, of course, once the wind went out of the sails of Change UK, Labour kind of half reneged again mm. on the referendum vote, etc. Um, will it happen again? Who knows? Because um, it sounds like Jeremy Corbyn's trying to kick the issues sort of through mm. to September. He's learned from Theresa May's can-kicking approach that it 
It's um, who knew that Jeremy Corbyn would be this sort of Tony Blair triangulation, yeah, it, Jeremy uh, and Theresa May sort of can kicking tribute act. It, people do say that the triangulation thing of Tony Blair, and I've said it myself in the past. But actually, when you think about it, Tony Blair nearly was rather always, better at it. Well, won elections. Better, <laughs> not only was he better at it, but also he had a clear destination in mind, and it's not clear to me um, that. Uh, and so he would use that to mm. say, you know, he would put put two extreme versions mm. and say, look, you know, let's, let's go for the sensible, mainstream, mm. moderate um, uh, approach that, uh, that's in between them. So he would set out um, a clear destination and then put up two Aunt Sally's to, to knock down on either side. Um, with Jeremy Corbyn, it, it feels, uh, and Guardian columnist Raphael Baer has written about this a lot, that he's just a bit annoyed that Brexit's getting in the way of his revolution that you know, this Brexit yeah, thing is point, just that. an annoying distraction yeah. from, uh, from yeah. the, and, and, and the Labour insurgents. At, at some of the Corbyn loyalists on Twitter, um, which I try not to do for too extended <laughs> period of time, because uh, it's, well, it, it's a very different world, the political world they inhabit from mine, which is actually why it is worth you know, dipping into other people's political worlds every now and again. Um, and... To, to my eyes, they have been coming up with increasingly convoluted, you know, in, before European election polling day, it, with increasingly convoluted arguments as to why it yeah. wasn't really about Brexit, of which one of my favourites was, it's not really about Brexit, but we have to elect Labour MEPs so that they're able to vote for a good progressive uh, European Union president. I thought, so your argument is don't worry about whether or not your party wants Britain to come out of the EU because it's really important that we have the right person elected in the EU. Well, surely yeah. the best way of getting the right person elected in the EU, not just in this contest and future ones, is for us to stay in the EU. It's just very, it, it, as you say, almost desperate to make the election about anything other than Brexit. It's very politically, explicitly politically calculating to a quite surprising degree that a party is wearing its strategy on its sleeve mm. and trying to uh, sort of tell people, look, you know, we just have to listen to the mm. voters and they will tell us what to do. And it's that whole will of the people thing which seems to have infected um, the political discourse as opposed to saying, actually, this is what we believe and this is how we think we can get there, who's with us, which um, surprised me at the moment is, is the yes. Lib Dem approach and, it, and uh, it's working. Yeah, I mean, although the will of the people is very much the political discourse, it's sort of the will of the people except that Labour's current leadership, at least, isn't really paying attention to the massive Remain leaning views of both the Labour membership and the Labour voting base. Yeah. Even the Labour MPs in Northern England who have got constituencies that voted leave at the referendum, when you delve into the details, overwhelmingly they're elected by people and dependent on the votes of people who are Remainers. That They might have a leave voting constituency, but they got elected because of the votes of Remainers. Likewise, in the Conservative Party, lots of talk about respecting the will of the people, except unless you're a Conservative Remainer in Southern England, in which case, let's just ignore you and, and, and not really worry if we lose your support to the yeah. Democrats. Very, you know, the, the, the will of the people is a very uh, narrow narrow and, and flexible phrase that people deploy. And of course, most people who talk about the will of the people think it's absolutely outrageous that people should be able to express their will through a referendum on the terms of a Brexit deal. Really important we respect the will of the people as long as we don't let the people have to say what their will is. And of course, uh, the will of the people always happens to coincide with their own particular um, view yeah. of uh, how Brexit should play out. And it's interesting for me because, uh, I mean, as you know, I, uh, as I've revealed on this podcast before, you know, over many months, I've been on a journey, I guess, in that I was quite sceptical um, of the Lib Dem position on Europe. Um, you know, I've talked in the past about the fact that the Lib Dems were the original champions of a referendum mm. uh, and look how that's panned out and I think we need to own a bit of responsibility mm. for that. I've also, in the past, I was, I don't think I was ever in favour of Theresa May's deal, but I was kind of resigned to it as 
Uh, if you're going to have Brexit, that's probably about the best possible Brexit yeah, deal and, that's and likely to emerge. It, it's quite plausible to imagine a slightly different a kind world. of Norman Lamb type view. Exactly, in which you know, in which if Theresa May had taken a much more emollient approach after the mm-hmm. referendum, so it was only 52-48, we've got to have a deal that Remainers will be willing to stomach as well as that delivers on the sorts of promises that vote leave made during the European referendum about how we would negotiate and get all the details right before we leave. You, you could imagine if she had taken that sort of approach and a similar sort of deal had emerged from that, which frankly it would have because what she got was pretty much as good a deal as could be negotiated yeah. in those circumstances. It's very easy to write a lot of Liberal Democrats thinking, well, yeah, you know, we, we're not in favour of this, so OK, our MPs will vote against it in Parliament, but we're not really going to champion, you know, be, be, be campaigning day in, day out um, to stop this happening because sort of that's how the referendum voted. But instead... Yeah, I think that the, the Leavers made a, in, in slightly different ways, because there are obviously quite a few different camps of Brexiteers, but they, they made a massive miscalculation, and yeah. they took 52-48 to mean, well, we get everything we want, we can ignore everyone else. Uh, and, 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 and not only did that, but failed to make the case at any point that there are some trade-offs yeah. involved. You know, the, more, you know, the more that you want things to change from how they were in the past the more there are some downsides to that. Now, you might still argue that the net balance, I would disagree with this, but there's a respectable, albeit I think completely wrong case to argue (laughs) that some major changes to do with our relationship with Europe might be worth the downsides to go with them. But to pretend that there are only upsides, I think there's a a big, big miscalculation that in that sense has emboldened Remain campaigners. And so um, someone like me who, you know, has been on that journey from uh, being slightly annoyed with the party's stance in some ways, um, and then has been radicalised by Theresa May's tone do I, need, do I need to report you to some government anti-radicalisation uh, programme? Possibly, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, um, prevent no deal or something. Um, uh, so, radicalised by Theresa May, May's tone deafness uh, and, you know, blaming her own MPs, blaming the public, etc., for not getting on board with her own plan. Uh, and then also um, by... I guess I feel sort of released from that sense of obligation by the fact that it was Brexit who actually sank Theresa May's deal. Obviously, mm. the Remain um, inclined parties, yeah. to be fair, including Labour, I suppose, ish, um, voted against the mm. deal. But uh, ultimately, it was sunk by the fact that uh, the DUP plus the hard right ERG Tory MPs voted against it. And so I kind of feel like getting three years on yeah. um, from the referendum, um, the obligation to follow. Um, that mandate has more or less expired. And particularly and when not, Brexiteers And that's not the fault of people yeah. like me who are willing to mm. compromise quite mm. a lot um, from a position mm. of being a Remainer, saying, OK, this deal might be as good as it gets, and now feel, actually, you know, that if, if you don't think that, mm. as people who championed mm. Brexit, then why should I, as someone who didn't champion it, continue to support it? So mm. it's interesting that I feel like I've gone on that journey. It might be that some members mm. of the public, I'm not claiming to be representative of them, but it may be that some other people have gone on that journey too. And we've got to this interesting point, I guess, where you've got this, this polarisation and fragmentation, polarisation of um, the parties caught in between um, being outflanked both by Brexit mm. Party, obviously on the, on the no-deal uh, nationalist uh, hard-right front, and then uh, Lib Dems and Greens, um, and, and the tiny Change UK um, group as well, uh, on the uh, arch Remainer side. And that's interestingly kind of reflected in the European elections, which obviously weren't in any way dominated yeah. by Brexit, but same, saw the same kind of transnational uh, effect of those centre-ish parties that have mm. been in power for so long being squeezed 
by more radical voices yeah. on their left and right. And you touched in there <clears throat> on the importance of political leadership, which neatly segues uh, just briefly to say I before we close that uh, you, obviously Liberal Democrat leadership election now underway. Yeah. Uh, we have a really interesting interview. And so we've lost a Prime Minister since the last podcast, but of course the Dems lost a leadership candidate as well uh, in that Leila Moran, who never officially mm. declared but was Good expected point. Um, to uh, be one of the three candidates standing announced she wasn't. So now it's going to be almost certainly, uh, not officially declared yet, a two-way between Joe Swinson and Ed Davey. Exactly. And the first hustings is actually taking place before the nominations close. (laughs) So if there is to be a surprise third candidate, I think we will see that very, very soon. Uh, But I think it does look like that it will be uh, those two. Um, We have sort of in the bank for a a imminent future episode, an interview with Tim Farron talking about what it's like being Lib Dem leader and possible lessons for the new leader, which will be really interesting. And we will certainly be covering the leadership contest as well on this podcast. How regularly we cover it will partly (laughs) depend on how exciting or not it is. Uh, But I think we will manage at least one. Will it be the most boring leadership race yet? Let's be honest. I was just about to end with a plug for people to subscribe to this podcast <laughs> to get our exciting coverage of this Keep contest. up to date with the most boring, boring contest. contest ever. So go to your favourite podcast app, find Nevermind the Bar Charts, hit subscribe, and if you've got any people you really don't like and you want to bore them as well, encourage them to also sign up and hear all of our coverage as we discover who the next Liberal Democrat leader will be. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>